0: Temporary Plays for Radio. Earplay. This week, Earplay presents part two of the BBC production of Judgment. Barry Collins. The setting is World War II. Captain Vukov, an officer in the Russian army, stands accused of cannibalism by a military court. He has already related the events which led to his capture by the German army and his incarceration with several comrades. Abandoned by the guards and without food, the prisoners are left to face the price of survival. Part 2 of Judgment by Barry Collins. Lysenko, comrades, a mild, slender man, once a teacher, I believe, and short-sighted. His eyesight collapsed almost completely in the darkness, unlike my own. Once he told us, Banashevsky and me, that he had visited Ryazan as a child, with his mother, a young widow, staying with relatives by coincidence in the very next avenue to that where his future wife, he later discovered, was then living as a girl though they did not actually meet until years afterwards when she fell while skating on the Neva at Leningrad, and he was lucky enough to be nearest to help her up and was captivated by her immediately, so that throughout their life together, in the last brief piece, he had trembled whenever he looked at her. At least he told us so. And now I... And three of my brothers had smothered the life from this gentle man against his will, and our common resolve had ended, I would term it unhesitatingly, in murder. Oh, yes, comments. Surely you are not tempted to excuse me this with some euphemism, some justification. It was murder. Surely you are not going to say our brother Lysenko condoned his own death, as it were, by joining the lottery by providing a hair from his own head for the lottery. Comrades, these are mere the niceties. I ask you. Do they apply? Be rigorous. Our entombment most decidedly occurred. It was not, in the strict sense, an unnatural event. It was an episode of war. And do your legalities not extend to all episodes of the war? Very well, then. Will you tell me there are circumstances in which murder is not a crime? In this instance, Officer Lysenko joined the lottery, but rejected its result on the reasonable grounds that our brother Banishevsky had been allowed to opt out. Why, you may ask, did he not object before the lottery was drawn? The answer, I suspect, lay partly in Officer Rubin's moral command and partly in the hope, even at odds of only 5 to 1, of escaping selection. Certainly these were my own thoughts at the time. As for Officer Rubin... He explained later that he knew my brother Banaszewski would neither wish nor be able to benefit from ignoring the lottery. If he remained outside the common group, he would soon starve to death. But the majority having determined on the second reckoning it would be wrong and dangerous to our solidarity, so Officer Rubin felt, to take advantage of Banaszewski's isolation, postpone the choice and simply wait for him to expire. And once the lottery had been held, it would be impossible not to act upon its choice or else the whole strategy of the lottery would be destroyed. Therefore... Officer Lysenko, being the unfortunate one, had to die. By yet a further irony, of course, the precise manner of that death destroyed the strategy in any case. But when the choice fell upon him, Officer Lysenko backed away as best he could to his place on the wall, saying we had cheated him because he could not see, saying, for mercy's sake, spare him, speaking of his wife, his young child, railing at Banishevsky. Any of us would have done the same. But we came upon him, he could not see us even then, and held him the harder as he struggled and pressed his mouth to stop his screams and so part throttled and part smothered him as we had the Colonel Tlechikov, but so differently that having killed poor Lysenko together, we could never trust each other to act in common again, except together to lift Officer Lysenko's warm body from his place on the wall to the place of the Colonel's. Dismemberment and... There, our brother Rubin thoughtfully began to draw his blood. Though all the while unknown behind us, our silent brother Banashevsky's own blood was leaking to waste down the faint slope of the cell floor. Ah, you will say, comrades, if Banashevsky had joined the lottery, Lysenko might not have lost, or if Banashevsky had killed himself an hour sooner... There need have been no lottery at that point, and future lotteries might have spared Lysenko to stand here, where I stand now before you. But that is speculation, comrades. My concern, you agree, I hope, must be with what occurred with the facts. And the fact is that poor Lysenko died, and I did not. Suddenly, there were only four of us alive. Our contract now was irreparably broken. Little as we may have realized it at that terrible moment we were already deep in the logic of personal response. Short of release, the final pattern of our torment was fixed to the exclusion of chance. For the time being, however, our brother Rubin's command remained. In fact, these, I would say, were the days of his most complete dominance, his total care and control of our mutual situation for the benefit of all, that is, or for surviving... He it was, as we knelt at that same spot, in that same ritual, who divided our sustenance between us, taking account of our experience to apportion the pleasanter parts as fairly as could be managed, if anything, denying himself the delicacies. Oh, yes, comrade's delicacies, a relative term, you understand. As for me, the distress of my friend's death was desolating. Maybe a full day I stayed at the war without a word from Reuben except words of comfort and concern. And then... As he expected, I took food again. Only a day after my brother Banaszewski's suicide, I was eating his flesh with as little scruple, comrades, and as discriminately, as fastidiously, as I had finally helped devour the colonel himself. Now, forgive me, I say this, not to shock, not in remorse, but as an undeniable fact. Mentally, emotionally, I had made the necessary Adjustment. Physically, we all, all four remaining, soon had sharpened bones to eat with, while our brother Reuben was quickly developing the most remarkable surgical skill. But our adjustments were divisive. Well as we fed, we rarely spoke now. Even Reuben, the encouraging Reuben, gradually began to turn inward upon himself. For this time, even with two bodies to feed on, the period of safety, of respite, was still shorter. The cycle of hope, the expectation of release, the certainty of a new offensive, of the monastery's recapture, even of the enemy's return. This time, these fantasies were yet briefer, and the subsequent despair yet more profound and profounder for the suspicion of which we now viewed each other, since after the death of our brother Lysenko, a further lottery was out of the question. We knew that. And none of us knew, but each of us wondered what the next mode of decision might be, all of which slowly sapped Officer Rubin's authority and plunged him into ever deeper quietness and gloom. In the event, the confrontation of the final four, for such it had become, was resolved by Officer Block, who chose, as I said, the gesture of self-sacrifice. Block, who had latterly begun to pray with increasing fervency and a kind of rapture, broken by repeated assurances that his prayers encompassed us all. However, was... Officer Bloch seemed to draw much comfort from the legend of St. Peter, the legend of the monastery itself, the tradition of self-denial. And suddenly, it was on the morning of the 40th day, by my counting, on that morning, our brother Bloch made what amounted to an announcement in the circumstances, saying that he personally had at last concluded our position was hopeless that we could expect no reprieve, that he could no longer see any agreed way of retaining our dignity, as he put it, that we were again almost afraid to sleep for fear of each other, that a pact, a collective suicide, was impossible because we now lacked the collective trust for such a step, and because in any case he, personally, would never contemplate taking his own life, but that some initiative, in his own rather formal phrase, some personal initiative was required since he felt we had lost the will to endure, we had severally contracted a weakness of will that pandered to the quickening weakness of our bodies, as if we had all unconsciously begun to desire an end, a termination, and therefore he proposed, if we would agree, that he should accept himself what the lottery had brought to Trechikov and Lysenko, that he should lay down his life, as he put it, to reduce our dilemma For he, at least, he said, could now cheerfully do so in the reasonable hope of salvation thereafter, a hope which, though he recognized its risk of delusion, though he accepted its willfulness, was nonetheless real to him at that moment, despite all he had undergone, and thus he would ask that we permit him the solace of final prayer for us as much as for himself, and then do with him as we would, thereby allowing what he frankly admitted was his release from a trial that had become intolerable. It was, I think, an extraordinary statement, especially from one who had at first shown such patience, such stubborn humour, from one whose songs and peasant stories had brought us merciful diversion in the early days of our entombment. But now, comrades, in reply to his proposition, no one said a word. Not Reuben, not I, not Officer Lubianko. In fact, our brother Lubianko had not once spoken for something above a week. Reuben never even looked up. He was gazing incessantly at his own wrist... under the effect it seemed of some deep change, some metamorphosis. Or taking our silence as consent, I must suppose. Officer Block knelt, indeed, to pray... and stayed kneeling a good hour, I would guess... utterly still and silent. Then Rose blessed us, hoped salvation for us... if not on earth, then elsewhere wished us goodbye, kissed us each at our places on the wall, then lay down and fell into some sort of trauma. I'll take it to have been so. None of us moved to him. No. Frankly, for some inexplicable reason, we ignored him. And by the next day, when I myself finally stirred to wake him, He was dead. I remember how disinterestedly I had watched him at his prayers. I remember the self-possession with which he merely lay down full length to die. Do you doubt me, Carmen? Oh, very well. You are correct. What I rashly assumed to have been block self-possession may well have been exhaustion. The concentration, perhaps, of a man of the last of his strength and mustering that strength for some final gesture... But forgive me, I cannot think so. I cannot think Officer Block was indeed exhausted. Very near it, to be sure. But if his strength was spent, from where did he summon the animation, the business-like animation of his speech, I can only term it a speech, of the previous day? But I do not recall that speech as one of fatigue, rather of decision. Not that it matters, of course, for the purpose of presenting the facts, decision or fatigue. At this distance in this room, it can only be a question of interpretation, not of fact. And the fact is that on the 40th day of our entombment, Officer Block laid down and died. And no one noticed. That too, comrades. That was a fact. I must confess, I observed the death of Officer Block, I watched it, from an icy unconcern. As if it were a demonstration on some doctor's table. How then can I properly report it? My duty, I have said, is to the facts but I also have a duty to my brothers in this case, and to none of them necessarily, would the facts have seemed the same. At the last, did Officer Block abdicate his life, or did he simply die? There is a world of difference, comrades, and it does matter. It matters if I am to keep faith with Captain Block. I know that now. Comrades, Block declared a readiness to die. He lay down, evidently expecting to die, and he died. That is what I saw. Does it answer the question? I think not. But I can hardly tell you what I did not see. I did not see, did not register the precise moment of Officer Block's death. My inwardness prevented it. Or do I misrepresent him then? The problem troubles me. My witness and my friend Banishevsky's suicide, can it be wholly reliable? Is it wholly to be trusted? I ask myself, have I done him less than justice? For the act of suicide is not widely approved, even or perhaps especially in the theater of war. But, Bukov, you might say, Bukov, look here, you promised us only your report. It is up to us, your judges, to do justice. You stick to the facts. And I thank you, Conrad, I thank you for your understanding. But I would say further, consider the difficulties of the facts. How problematic they are, how the very act of description can distort them. Take my brother Lysenko's death. Did my description of it leave a certain hint of cowardice on his part? If so, I beg you, comrades, dismiss it. My brother Lysenko's reaction to the lottery was one of anger, of helplessness, a sense of having been duped, made scapegoat. Or was it? How can I tell? And how may I describe the final death, the death of Officer Lubianko, without doing some disservice, at least by your legalities, to my dear brother Rubin? It is complex, comrades, this... Business of the facts. The iron malleability. Perhaps for a moment I might speak of myself, it is easier. You may still wonder, frankly, I too have begun to wonder, what it was that enabled me to survive our shared imprisonment when five of my brothers died, and to survive it so differently from Officer Rubin. Now, for one thing to be sure. I was fortunate I escaped the lottery. Again, perhaps my body must have proved reliable, my mind, or if you prefer my spirit, satisfactorily adaptable. Also, it is possible for me, circumstances and my own moods never reached that precise confluence that prompted some singular decision, as, for instance, with Officer Block and my brother Banishevsky. My own response was merely to try and go on, but not, I think, from any particular strength of will rather for lack, as I saw it, of any better alternative. Now, believe me, I say this not in any spirit of abjection or formal self-criticism. I genuinely wonder, as I make my report, whether an important element in my continuance might not have been a swathing apathy of the spirit, a spiritual malnutrition. You will recognize the paradox, of course, yet another paradox. An apathy that carries its own habitual economy, its instinctive conservation. For I see now, comrades, generally, I found myself doing only what was required, taking no initiative except in the matter of the time, expending little, responding to circumstance, never dictating to it. Was it then by my pliancy, my very ordinariness, that I survived? Now, this may not redound much to my credit as an officer, but maybe I simply... Struggled less than my brothers. Yes, that, could that be it? That I fought less, either for or against certain responses. If so, I would not count it a weakness any more than I would count my survival a strength. Only a difference. And I feel neither remorse nor pride in such difference, neither remorse that I depended at a certain point on my brother Reuben's costly struggle to sustain me, nor pride that in the end my brother Reuben was, to some extent, sustained by me. It matters, I say. The difference always matters. But, comrades, can it reasonably affect your estimation of my fitness for return to the war? Despite our difference, Reuben and I would both have died eventually had not Officer Scriabin freed us. And if Scriabin had not freed us, or freed us later, my courage would have been put to the test of some decision. At the last confrontation with my brother Reuben, I too would have been compelled to some singularity or other. Had it happened so, and had I still survived... Doubtless, I, too, would have viewed our facts differently, more in the light, perhaps, of that decision than of my previous acquiescence. I would not have been the same man. But then, in truth, I cannot fully recognize even the man I have just presented to you. That inertness, that acquiescence, how does it relate to the flux of my moods, my cell moods? Do you see, comrades, why I have preferred to rely, despite their dangers, on the facts as I saw and recall them? For I am something of an expert in the play of moods, prison moods, I say, that might hold like fog for days or switch and change by the hour, by the minute even, dependent on factors of fatigue, digestion, sexuality. Oh, to be sure, comrades, sexuality, it proved in the circumstances a factor of remarkable resilience. Often it seemed we were the Earth's last creatures. I lost all. Apprehension of the world outside our four close walls. The universe shrunk to a narrow cell, it is not a new sensation. Many men have felt it, and many men, like me, have fought it with their dreams. The boundless dream of freedom, the deliberate reverie that melts the walls and draws up the world again from the sediment of each separate life, conjuring the private stock of images, memories, selecting from them, repeating, practicing, adjusting them to a comforting script. My wife, always my wife, the children, my politics sister. But for me there was always the time too to break the dream the light entering our cell each morning through the little grill high on the wall entering extending pausing retracting the pendulum of light the faultless metronome that established and re-established our reality and therefore limited my moods the time comrades. such a simple thing could it have been the time that saved me in the first weeks we had as it were compared notes in the calendar but even before colonel trechikov's death some of my brothers had grown irritated with the procedure eventually i took to making a mark for each day upon my wall with a piece of bone soon this also became an irritation the scratching of the bone the ranks of the days mounting in the sevens after an interval i began making my marks whenever the others were asleep which was not often for in that respect we had become disorientated we slept irregularly if at all Patiently, I saved up my days for the moment when I might bring my war calendar up to date, graving the marks with care, clean, white, in the wall stone, and every now and again going back to the start to elongate them. It was an obsession of sorts, like our secret fears, our secret calculation. Perhaps the others noticed. If so, they said nothing, made no further objection. The calendar had finally become my private game, and we all, I assure you, comrades had our private games. But in those last days before Officer Block's death, what comfort was a calendar... All I know is that I woke on the 41st morning to see Officer Blanc lying full length in the center of the cell, as he had been when I fell asleep and for some hours before. I remembered his declaration, though I had ignored it. I found I remembered every word of it. And suddenly I felt it wrong, that he had delivered up his life to us and that we, in our despair, had rejected him. And here he was, still lying there. I crawled across from my place on the wall. I was going to say, forgive us, Yuri. Yuri was his Christian name, Yuri Nikolaevich. I was going to say, forgive us, Yuri. We can't do it, or something like that. Some such formula, some excuse or other, something similarly unsatisfactory. But when I came to him, I could see he was dead. He was cold, a mere corpse shriveled. His poor body witnessed to what he had suffered. I sat and looked at him at the manner of his going. And I think, by another paradox, comrades, that his going returned me to myself. I felt amazingly clear-headed, clear-minded, able to continue, to go on. Now, too, I I saw my brother Ruben's own inwardness, the cowl of it, the growth of it. As the meaning of his assumed role was destroyed, I saw Officer Lubianco sickening. I saw how quickly the sickness was beginning to take him, a sickness of the stomach which ground him woefully a failure of the chest which made him cough almost incessantly, a cough which had been worsening for some time, which had doubtless contributed to our depression, but a cough which I seemed never to have actually heard until then, sitting there beside my brother Blockspot. And the light, I saw the light, comrades, the lost days shrunk perfectly to scale as I sat, and I knew there were two days to make up on the calendar, two days most exactly, and a third now for the sun was entering our cell once more through the tiny grill high in the outer wall, entering, lengthening, fixing, retracting to make a further day, and the slow pendulum moved again in its proportion for me. And when Reuben himself also stirred and saw me sitting beside Bloch's corpse and crawled across from his place in the wall, I was able to say, I'm afraid he's gone. Just so. So precisely. But Reuben said nothing. Made no reaction. Almost without pause, like a man in a dream, I thought. He pulled Officer Block's light body by the armpits to the place, the same place where Colonel Trenchikov had died, then went to fetch his collection of sharpened bones from his own place in the wall and began his careful surgery, first again stripping a patch of skin to hold the draining blood, while I moved to Lubyanko, coughing, and woke him and tried to tell him. But when Rubin brought the gourd to drink, Lubianko, raised on one elbow, dashed it aside so that it spilt partly on the floor, partly upon himself, on his legs, so that he twisted to his knees and tried to wipe himself clean with his hands, wiping his hands on the floor. Only there was more blood on the floor, and as he struggled to clean himself, he knelt in it and cried out with such disgust, such revulsion, and scrambled back along the wall to a new place, coughing violently, bent upon himself, trying to raise saliva from his dry mouth, to spit in his legs, his knees, the hair of his groin, to clean himself, And the spit, such as he could summon, mixing with the phlegm of his coughing on his hands, and the blood, too, now on his hands, and all the wetness rubbing to a paste on his hands until he forgot about the rest himself, and fell into a coil on the floor of this new place in an agony of coughing, his rubbing, scraping hands plunged down into his stomach, and his body curled round them, shuddering, his head almost between his knees. Reuben restored, I thought, in the emergency, knelt down to help, and I, with him, to comfort but uh, for Lubianko, there was no help, no comfort. At the touch of our hands, comrades, he squirmed away from us until Reuben rose, knowing, as he had known with my friend Banishevsky, that there was nothing to be done, and he picked up the patch of skin from the floor, and we returned, he and I, to the corpse of our dead brother, Block. Later, considerably later, when his pain receded, his coughing subsided, Lubianko asked for food, and Ruben took him food, but... Each time, within minutes, he had vomited it back. Then he would weep, poor man, in terror, saying his body was rejecting what he had done, that his dead brothers were destroying him from within. Or he would accuse us, Reuben and me, of poisoning him, saying we fed him the rotten flesh, the parts that would sicken him, because he was too ill to fend for himself. And he would refuse more food, would scream, we ventured anywhere near to help him, and until the hunger became too great again, and he would eat and vomit and fall back into his fever of pain. It was appalling to have to watch him... Suffer to watch so uselessly. Yet at his first fit, when our brother Bloch's blood spilled upon him, Reuben and I had decided unspokenly that Officer Lubyanka would be the next to die. Effectively, he would select himself for the next death by dying. No need of a strategy. That was clear on the instant. Both to Reuben and myself, no need for a decision of any kind, save the decision of our brother Lubyanka's body and... No matter how well we might tend him, that decision would not be altered. The astonishing thing was that we had not seen all this before. That in our sullen isolation we had somehow failed to appreciate how ill Lubianko had become. Even Block had not known it, as he struggled towards his own resolution. And if he had known it, you might ask, would he still have offered up his life and died? If, comrades, if only... If only the war had not been so cruel, if Officer Block had been an infantryman or an admiral of the fleet, if he had been born across the frontier or been born with some disablement or not been born at all. Forgive me. The fact of the matter is merely that, for some reason, the degree of Lubianko's pain escaped us. In part, I suspect, this was because the man was so big... It seemed unthinkable his great body should fail. For Officer Lubianko was magnificent, comrade. Deep-chested, with enormous shoulders, rich black hair. In the early days, he had entertained this by rippling his muscles to our songs. His thigh-bone, comrades, this, my silent witness, you remember? This was his thigh-bone. Looking back, of course, I can see the signs, the clues to his collapse. For instance, the cold... Nubiak was the most affected of us by the cold, the night chill. Even at the end, high summer outside the cell, the dark hours were often miserably cold, without clothes, often without sleep, alone on the stone floor. So in the first days, the May days, you can imagine, comrades, how we huddled together at night, shivering for warmth. The one time he escaped the cold was finally when the fevers took him and he would burn as badly as he had shivered only moments before. From the 45th, day by my reckoning, Lubianko did not even try to eat. He simply screamed hour by hour by hour. No begging now, no cursing, no complaining, just that scream constantly. Yet soon, I confess it, my mind was closed to that screaming, closed to Lubianko's agony. My brother Rubin, however, seemed to hear everything. Every modulation of Lubyanko's pain seemed etched upon him physically. Lying there on his side, his head cradled on his arm, unmoving as if hypnotized. He watched, watched it all, heard it all, avoided nothing the 47th day, the 48th day, until on the 49th day, by my own reckoning, I suddenly noticed he'd begun to scratch his neck rhythmically as he lay even just below the ear. Twice, three times, I moved across to stop him. Straight away, he started again until the fourth time... I lifted him and left him sitting with his shoulders to the wall. Finally, on the fiftieth day, he began to rock backwards and forwards, rather as he had swayed, you may remember, over Colonel Tedikov's body. And all at once, as if some guy rope had snapped, he was on his feet, half standing, bent, and bounding over the cell to where Lubianko lay, screaming, and in a moment he had strangled him. Only a moment, comrades, and Reuben had broken Lubianko's neck. I heard the sound, I heard it distinctly, the crack. Of Lubyanko's neck breaking in Rubin's great hands, those hands, all his pity, all his pent emotion hardened those hands, I would say, as they seized Lubyanko by the throat and put him to death to sleep. It was done so quickly, so powerfully, I think Lubyanko cannot have suffered, cannot even have realized what was happening. There was no sound, no real struggle, only a start of horror in his face, a sightless, contorted panic, and he was dead. Ruben never looked at him. He just knelt and stayed, kneeling, with Lubyanka's body twisted sideways before him. His hands set fast, locked, rigid, round the throat, and he, gazing expressionless somewhere toward the cell door. For myself, I felt only relief. Relief at the silence, at an end to all that pain. Nothing more. Only relief. Standing here before you, comers, it would be easy to pretend otherwise, claiming to have felt the most moving pity for the last of my dead brothers, but it would be a charade. My pity for Lubianco, my compassion, were overwhelmed by the weight of his pain and my own helplessness before it, since I could not soften that pain. I retreated from it instinctively. I suppose I withdrew my compassion to save myself being crushed lubianko's screams were like needles in my brain i fled from them into a kind of alert neutrality i confess it without shame comrades i confess that there's a fact that is what happened i see it clearly i was an observer too at lubianko's death and my brother rubin who could not escape the piercing needles who could not or perhaps would not hide from those screams he was the actor in that death as i expected Oh, yes, Connors, I knew what Officer Reuben would do, and out of his courage, his understanding, his resolve of what he did, suddenly he ceased rocking and sat where I had leaned him against the wall, summoning himself, I would say, having decided it must be done, deciding how it must be done, then having done it quicker and with less hurt perhaps than any doctor's morphia, having done it, I say, he knelt locked in the completion of it until I moved to him again and tried to bring him away but he only went back to his wall for his collection of bones and then returned, and without once looking at Lubianko's contorted face, he severed the head at the neck and placed Lubianko's head at the end of the row of heads, the fifth head, and dragged the torso to the place of the remains. Only this time he left the body untouched and instead went silently to his own place on the wall and lay down again, fingering his throat, his hands bloody to the wrists. Now, ask yourselves, comrades. Was that a murder? And since by your categories, you must say it was, ask yourselves, I beg you, wasn't that murder an act of love, an act of courage and compassion? Thank you, comrades. I thank you. In your pity, you agree. You excuse or should I say absolve, very well. You absolve my brother Rubin, insofar as it is in your power, of his technical offence as offence it was within your categories. But your absolution, I feel, might be withheld from me. You are disturbed, perhaps, that I watched as Lubianko suffered as he died and that I did nothing. Comrades, I am, if you wish, my own facts, my own defense. I present myself without the simulation for your judgment. Now, to be sure, such judgment may turn upon estimates of my nature different from my own. If that be so, so let it be. I cannot tell what I do not know. I simply offer my report together with what sense of my nature it reveals. That is to say, my report from the death of Lubyanko to the point of our release ten days later. You will notice, comrades, how precise I am once more about the time. Yet I have to acknowledge that at the last, my calendar lied. From day 54, I no longer scratched the marks. I kept the days, but I did not mark them. That morning, a bird flew in through the little grill. A small bird, maybe a sparrow. Out of the light, into the dark, flying round high up under the roof with nowhere to settle, looping lower now and again, the flapping of its wings like the flap of great fast sails in the silence. While we had been alone, neither Reuben nor I had moved. Lubianko's body was untouched. I remember the coldness of the cell even at noon. Reuben lay along his wall, face to the stone. I sat at my place in total calm. Comrades, I have never felt so relaxed. It was as if my body had slowed and slowed almost to zero. I had hardly slept in the full three days. I was beyond sleep, beyond hope, beyond despair, beyond hunger, it seemed, beyond thirst, beyond pain. There was nothing to do but wait. No need yet of a further initiative. So I waited, at rest, at ease, knowing I had nothing to fear from my brother Reuben in his rigid separateness, knowing instinctively that the next stage was up to me, that by default, as it were, by Rubin's spiritual exhaustion, the initiative would now be mine eventually, and the care. Now perhaps you are sceptical of such calm, calmness, such stillness, at that stage in our torment, but I assure you, it was so, until on the morning of the fifty-fourth day, the bird flew into our cell, without even touching the window bars and could find nowhere to settle, and needing it could find no way out from the darkness to the light, but stuck against the bars now, flapping, flapping, striking the bars, falling down the length and retreating a little, rising again and still in its panic, unable to get through and falling and retreating. Now, to me, comrades, the bird was a matter of indifference, an error, a chance intrusion, certainly not a consolation, hardly even a reminder. Only a bird. Either it would escape or it would not neither way would it affect the pattern of our suffering. But I was wrong, since my brother Reuben, too, was still part of that pattern. And the trapped bird threw Reuben into a frenzy. I can only call it a frenzy, comrades. A frenzy of rage or fear, maybe, I cannot say precisely. Except that the sound of the struggling bird sent him wild, leaping for it, clutching at it, yelling, whimpering. I thought him frozen where he lay, but at the first sound of the flapping wings, he seemed to be on his feet, rushing round the sail, slipping, slithering, hitting the walls, trying to climb them, head turned upwards, arms above his head, fingers crooked, teeth bared, and as a bird looped lower, tiring, he jumped it at the wilder, frightening it, roaring it, to a storm of panic. And the bird was gone, as suddenly as it came. It flew out quite cleanly through the bars, and everything was quiet again. And the loss of it, that bird, seemed to startle Reuben. He stood, looking up at the grill, then began to cry. He wrapped his arms around his head, slid down the cell wall to the floor, slowly, softly settling like a bag of water, it seemed, as if he had run to water. Or sand, yes, sand, a loose bag of sand, slowly settling on the cell floor. And he cried, he sobbed, terrible, terrible sobs. "'shook the whole flesh pull of him there on the stone floor. "'And I went to him and gathered him as best I could in my arms "'and held him close across my stomach, "'and he slept quietly for many hours "'without resistance to me or to his sleep, "'until the sun entered our cell for the 55th day, "'which I did not mark, "'but continued to hold him until he woke and seemed restored, calmer. "'He smiled for a moment.' and looked up at me I remember I had decided that we must eat again and that now I must take some initiative in the matter so I laid Rubin back against the wall where he had fallen beneath the window and I took his collection of bones from his original place and went to Lubianko's body where it lay full length at the place of the remains and quite without emotion without hesitation as I recall I began to cut into the flesh At first, comrades, I could not judge the degree of pressure needed. The skin was surprisingly strong, and the cutting bone rather spoiled. Then I recalled a phrase I had heard once from a surgeon, the surgeon who amputated my teleconer's leg. Last winter, was it? Winter before. Strange that it should come to mind. If it needs cutting, he said, then it must be cut. And I cut, clumsily, into Lupianko's magnificent body. But when I turned to take food to Reuben, I found him crouching in one corner of the cell, his head on one side, grinning at me from behind his beard. And when I moved towards him, he started away along the wall and then back again, darting, crouched. And when I still came towards him, he screamed, he raised his hands, palms outward, to fend me off, and I had to leave the cut flesh on the cell floor in front of him. And once more he began to whimper, finally to cry, and crying let me hold him as before. I held him in my arms and I fed him as I fed myself on the flesh of our dead brother. And then he slept. But this time he cried even in his sleep, and when he woke, calmer for a moment, he pulled himself away from me, pushed me to my own place on the wall, and crouched in the corner, shoulders to the stone, gibbering, moaning, his tongue lolling, saliva sliding through his beard onto his chest, Comrades, it uh, hurts me to talk thus of my dear brother, Reuben, whom I love, with whom I shared such torment. Reuben, to whom I owe so so much, who took upon himself such burdens and our suffering. But I cannot pretend you have the testimony of the young lieutenant Scriabin, his sense of Reuben's state of mind at our release. Doubtless the lieutenant told you how frightened he was, how he clung to me. Oh, Comrades, he held me round the neck, his face pressed into my throat, and I couldn't loosen him, couldn't lift him. And you're... Know, Orderlies, two who washed him, your doctors who had him bound and drugged, they will have made their reports, their diagnoses and prognoses. His spirit has been scalded. They will say his mind has melted. He's berserk. He's like an animal. He is mad. And you also, comrades, in your pity, you will have seen Officer Rubin lying like some waxwork in his closed white room. How then can I suggest my brother is any other than as you see him, as your doctors saw and heard him? But seen what did they hear stethoscopes have they for my brother rubin's soul which of them ever knew him Hmm. to conceive this found he turned upon him who is in your hands and what do you know of him comrades Which of you in all your pity have held him as I held him in my arms? Held him, comrades, naked to my nakedness while his tears ran down upon my cradling arms. Held him while he sobbed asleep. Fed him day by day to the 60th day. Fed him, I say, and held him and still did not know him. Was rejected by him, thrown aside in terror by him and held him again as he slept. And while he slept, yes, comrades, while he slept, sharpened our brother Lupianko's thigh bones silently on the cell floor to a point as a means of killing him. Now forgive me, comrades. I want to speak plainly. After our long struggle for dignity, the dignified solution, you might suggest, in your abstract sense, would have been to choose death together, Uh, an agreement to die before being forced to the last barbarity. But supposing, in the abstract sense, that you were right, the dignified solution would have been, as it were, impractical, because I judged my brother Ruben unable to take a shared decision. The fact is, he no longer heard what I said, and in those last days, I spoke to him incessantly. Why, I do not know, but I told him everything, all that I could summon of myself, my childhood, my parents, my marriage, my children, my wife. I told him about my wife, what we'd done together, what we ate, what we read, even what we grew in our garden. I told him about our garden and Ryza and the forests. I told him about Banaszewski and my work and the war, particularly about the war, Though he knew about the war, and in any case, he wasn't listening. When he could not hear my life as I told it, I doubted he would hear suggestions as to death. Either he or I would commit suicide separately, or one of us at some point would attack the other. It seemed a poor alternative, comrades, but I could anticipate nothing else. I stopped hoping for release. Yet the chance was not to be discounted, the chance of our being freed at any second. I did not expect it, hardly even wanted it consciously anymore, but I did not discount the possibility. Therefore, it appeared to me, comrades, that insofar as it lay in my control, I should stave off any resolution between Reuben and myself for as long as I could. And if the resolution was to be postponed, I felt it reasonable too, to postpone any decision upon my own part in the matter. Comrades, I have learned to distrust somewhat The decisions of philosophy, the provisional decisions, the tempting moral gestures made before the act. Too often, don't you find, the action distorts the philosophy. The philosophy, if you like, is premature, and then sometimes the philosophy distorts the action, wouldn't you agree? Altogether, I preferred to avoid the speculative, the decision on a merely beckoning situation. I preferred to trust myself. I preferred to make my decision when the time came, and until that time, until the crisis, if it came, I preferred to wait. I ask you to accept. What I wanted was to avoid doing anything at all until action of some kind was unavoidable. Yet, seeing little chance of escape, I also felt it reasonable to equip myself, as it were, for the alternative of violence, and therefore I cut out Lubianko's thigh bone. It never occurred to me to seek a weapon, for such it was among the earlier remains. I took Lubianko's thigh bone and sucked the marrow from it, as we always had, and Rubin in a waking moment saw me do it and smiled at me. I thought indulgently, and, and I sharpened the bone as he slept slowly, silently, on the cell floor. I sharpened it and considered with some objectivity its most effective application, feeling, for instance, for my own heart as it pumped beneath the fifth rib, and feeling my brother Rubin's heart beneath the thick hair of his chest as he lay in my arms, until that sixtieth day, by my counting, when your young lieutenant spared us. Spared us what? Comrades, he spared us our last confrontation. Personally, I no longer feared death. I was resigned to it, I say, yet resisting, for there still remained, I thought, the better choice. And though it might seem absurd to call life a choice, nonetheless, I chose it. I still choose it. I only feared that final resolution between my brother Ruben and myself, feared what it would show me of myself and him, of what we were. the revelation was averted by Lieutenant Scriabin. Guess at it, if you will. I am content not to know myself quite that far. I was lucky. Scriabin placed the judgment, comrades, upon you, assembled in this room. Since I have survived, you are required to judge. And the facts of my survival are before you all but for the details of our release. Reuben was terrified by the lieutenant's intrusion, by the sound of the door cracking open by the torchlight and its disembodied voice, Scriabin's voice, asking where we his and later could we walk. For Reuben, I would say, the world indeed had shrunk to a vault of stone, hence his reaction to the little bird. There should have been no bird, there should have been nothing but him and me and that row of heads. And finally, I think there was nothing, nothing else, nothing, nowhere. only Reuben and Bukov. the carpet of blood and the pattern of their torment, now seven, six, five, four, three, now two. Then the young lieutenant broke open the door, and the world rushed back into the vacuum. For Reuben Comrades, release was a dream, a nightmare. Your reality, the reality of his white-closed room, that, too, is a nightmare within him. As he lies there now, he waits the continuation of our suffering. It is all there is. And could we walk, asked the lieutenant. Oh, yes, I said, we could walk. We were Reuben and Vukov, tank squadron, 3rd assault brigade, and we had been entombed for 60 days without food by the enemy, and yes, 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 we could walk. And he left again, young Scribent, who fetched the two greatcoats, closing the door behind him. But the vile Stentuous went with him, up the stone steps with him, and out into the summer air of the monastery courtyard, and the young lieutenant fell to his knees in the courtyard and vomited. I heard it. He wretched again and again until it seemed he would tear up his insides, and his men ran to him, and he'd recovered himself before them and stopped their questions about what he had found and put a guard at the stair top. Am I not right, comrades? And sent back for the greatcoats. And in the darkness below, I told Reuben we were free. In a great babble, I told him. It was over, at last it was over. We had endured. His child, he could see him again. And his old father, he'd soon be the gymnast again. There was nothing more to fear. In a babble, I said, but he could not hear, did not want to hear. And a second time, perhaps an hour later, Scriabin came down the steps, having calmed and steeled himself. And a second time, he opened the cell door, switched on the torch and threw in the coats all of which frightened Reuben more than ever, so that he scrambled out of my arms over into the father's corner and crouched there, whimpering in the darkness. And the lieutenant followed him with the torch, and Reuben fled again, capering round the wall and round, and the torch followed him until he tripped and fell over Lubyanko's body and rolled into the row of heads and screamed and screamed as he lay there among the heads, frozen in terror. Please take the light off him, I said, I remember. And uh, the young lieutenant himself, perhaps rather frightened, switched off the torch. I crawled to the greatcoats and pulled one on, heavy, rough, even to my weathered skin, fastening each button carefully to the throat. But Reuben, what to do with Reuben? The young lieutenant put on the torch again, shining at me. What about him, he said, gently, with great puzzlement? Whatever his feelings of horror, of disgust, of pity, I sensed he was, so to speak, relying on me can you get a coat over him he said so i took the second great coat and walked towards officer rubin rather ludicrously it seems to me now holding the coat before me like some matador poor rubin he no longer knew me and i in my great coat hunting him and the torch following behind me all at once, he curled himself tight on the floor, and when I knelt to him, opening out the coat, he uncoiled like a spring at the last moment and rolled aside and up under his haunches and backwards away along the wall. And I turned to the lieutenant, helpless, shamed, and Scriven said, we can't take him down like that. And, of course, Colin understood what he meant. Not merely a question of propriety. He meant it was some distance down through the birch forest, and Reuben would have to be both covered and calmed. After all, he was an officer, a major. Try this, he said... And when I went to him, slowly, hesitantly, to where he stood in the doorway, aghast yet fascinated, when I went to him, I say, he gave me a cloth soaked in chloroform. Yes, Comments, Scriven, too, had understood he is a clever young man. He had sent back for chloroform to calm Reuben as well as a great coat to cover him. And I was now to quell my dear brother, whom I had nursed, and Fed, whom I loved more than any other living thing, whom I had loved almost unto death. How wasn't to be done, Forcibly. And comrades, I had tried to coax him, tried to prepare him while the lieutenant went for the coats and the chloroform. I had tried to tell him there was nothing now to fear. How absurd, nothing to fear. And here I was, moving upon him, not with Lubianko's sharpened thigh bone, but with an army greatcoat, trying to deceive him with calm words, thinking to press the cloth to his face suddenly when I was near to him, hoping he would trust me so that I could betray his trust. For his own good, I told myself, rather for mine. And when he wouldn't trust me, but still edged away from me along the wall... Then I rushed at him and threw the coat over him and caught him under it and fell for his head and held it by the hair. As he twisted and fought and bit and scratched, I held my brother Rubin not as he had held our companion, Lubianko, but with the clumsiness of uncertainty, of doubt, once more of shame. And I pressed the cloth to his mouth and straddled him strong as he was until he was still and quiet, and then I wrapped him in the coat. Oh, I notice that fact now, Commis. I did not dress him in the coat I wrapped him in it, wrapped him round and buttoned it to the throat, and then tried to lift him and couldn't, and so had to drag him across the cell because the lieutenant, for his own reasons, would not cross the threshold. I dragged my unconscious brother Reuben across our cell, I say, and half raised him for the lieutenant to lift and watched the lieutenant carry him up the steps ahead of me and picked up Lubianko's thigh bone from my place in the wall and put it in my sleeve as memento, you might say, as witness, my silent witness... Then I followed Scriabin up the worn steps and outside into the gathering dawn, which dazzled me so that I stumbled and fell, and no one came to help me. Instead, the watching soldier squad moved back from us, and Scriabin had to demand help from them, someone to take Reuben's legs. Comrades, his men had already made rough stretches for us, both of us, and four of the squad were detailed to carry us down through the birch forest with two more as escort while behind us, the resourceful lieutenant laid explosives in the monastery ruins. On his own initiative, comrades, Scriabin had decided what must be done, what was best, and besides the greatcoats, officer's greatcoats, and the chloroform and the stretches, he had ordered dynamite to destroy what remained, the underground chambers, the passages, the fountains, the tower. Behind us, all at once, There were six, perhaps seven explosions, some muffled, some clear. And way below, on the hillside as we were, dust and debris filtered down upon us through the leaves. Comrades, there is no escape, it seems to me, from what has happened. Already on that journey from the raised monastery, I knew that my release was purely provisional. In the close confines of our four walls, I had begun to consider the freedom of release as absolute, my future vast and uncontained. I beg your comrades, try to grasp the circumstances which produced so childish an illusion. Now, in the faces of my bearers, I recognized my error. I saw repulsion, I saw disgust. Those soldiers said nothing, not a word, but their eyes, their faces. And from them I knew that... Despite himself, the young lieutenant must have told what he had seen. Perhaps as he knelt vomiting on the courtyard cobbles and his men rushed to him, perhaps he said, they've been eating each other, or perhaps, oh God, they've been eating each other. Well, whatever he said, and however quickly he recovered himself, however efficiently he otherwise dealt with the situation, it was enough. I do not blame him. I asked myself, could I have stayed silent at such a time after such a sight? And I think not. Words, I would say, are an excusable recourse at moments of such anguish. Nonetheless, comrades, taking my own part, I ask you, imagine, to have been named, inadvertently perhaps, yet to have been named cannibal, cannibal, comrades, devourer of my brother's flesh, and then to be seen smiling at the centre of the birch trees on that downward journey through the forest, to be seen smiling while my brother Reuben lay bound in his greatcoat, unconscious, insane. Why was I not distraught like him? Who, or rather what, was I to walk composed from such a torment? In that forest journey, comrades, I foresaw this very hearing, the need of it, on your behalf and mine. I saw this hearing, forgive me, as the price of my freedom. My regret is that the telling of my story should involve such pain to you, comrades, I think, and more particularly to the families of my dear cell brothers, I can only ask forgiveness. There was nothing else to be done. I saw that on the journey through the forest. I foresaw the need to defend myself, a prospect I had never once envisaged in our cell. In some degree, I even saw the pattern of my defence, the shape of this, my testimony, my rehearsal of the facts. Had things turned out otherwise, I would plead with you to let me nurse my brother Rubin to... Let me stay with him to hold him, feed him, talk to him, restore him, if you like, to your reality. It would be my duty, would it not? It would be my love. Who could help him more than I? Vukov, partner in his suffering. Anyone, comrades. The answer must be anyone. Anyone could help him more than I. In his sleep, it is possible I still hunt him. With that spread greatcoat like some matador, waking, he could only fear me. Fear me more than anyone. Me, who suppressed him like an animal and delivered him to your doctors who have bound him and pronounced him mad, mad, comrades, mad. Your categories. My brother Reuben is as sane as any man among us to be left distraught by such an agony. But your doctors disagree, so I must beg you to care for him instead. To grant him your most constant and most patient care naturally you will treat him by your rules but i beg you do not forget that he is still himself whatever has been made of him and that time may yet soften the agony of being himself i trust there will always be that hope for him at least therefore please your rules preserve the chance of his waking encourage him to wake to reawaken to reality myself comrades i beg nothing our courtesy in hearing my defense and leave to the obsolescence of present conventions governing the conduct of the war what have I done, Comrade? What has been done that I get some safe conduct? This the war is far from over. It shows sign of abating. If I am not judged unfit by reason, voice, I belong. My itself, I say, was but an to my suffering. Why me? The question, I think, is not entirely rhetorical. It is why me? At all, I prefer. Your problem, I take it, is what shall be. I am content. The question is not, comrades. This, my history, Take it or not, is what... It. What then will you do with me? Comrades, I await your judgment. Comrades, I say, what is to be done with me? What is to be done? By Barry Collins, Blake was heard. The play was produced by Ear Production By grants from the Corporation for Public National Art. National...